0: Providing you with unique insights, unparalleled data, and real-time market analyses.
1: Welcome, okay. George. And great to have you. I was going to start by wishing you a uh, happy birthday tomorrow, and you corrected me that your birthday is June 29th, not July 29th. But I will wish you a belated birthday, and I will also—I was going to say that we share the July 29th date because that's Shields and my anniversary. So tomorrow's. March 21st, so to my wife, Sheila, happy anniversary, hon. And uh, I would say, George, she is very much looking forward to getting back on the tennis court with you soon and holding on to her title of the Hincappy Walker Thrill-In Manila tennis match the two of you had last summer in uh, <laughs> Aspen. I arrived home last night to a large box from our friend Charlie Hubner at the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee with a ton of swag for shields and my support of Team USA. And so I put on this polo shirt, which actually has the U.S. flag on it. And this is the shirt that the golfers are wearing in honor of your uh, five-time participation as a U.S. athlete on the U.S. Olympic team. And we'll talk Love about it. that a little bit later. So, George, you need no real introduction to those people who have any Clue about the cycling world, 17-time Tour de France racer, 5-time U.S. Olympian, placed second in the perry roubaix race in 2005, which is still the best performance of any American ever in that race. And you were the domestique for Lance Armstrong, Alberto Contador, and Cadell Evans in their Tour de France victories. So you've been on many, many winning Tour de France teams. There are a lot of listeners who might watch a stage of the Tour de France and say, I don't get what's going on here. I don't get yellow jersey, green jersey, polka dot jersey, all that stuff. So without going into too much detail on the various jerseys, for a moment, explain what a domestique is and what that role is in making it so that someone like
0: Armstrong or Evans is going to win the Tour de France. Sure. Well, first, thanks for having me on, Willie. I got the text message from you a couple of days before the end of the Tour de France, and I said, "Sure, I'd love to be on." I'm actually in shock of how many people have emailed and texted me saying, "You're on Willie Walker's podcast!" Like I've done a lot of interviews in my life, but I've never gotten so many people excited about me um, being on an interview as much as they are right now. So, <laughs> thanks for having me on. It's a pleasure. But as far as my role in the Tour de France, you know, a lot of people, like you said, aren't aware of all the tactics that go on in the tour and. know, how important positioning is and somebody like a road captain making the calls along the road. I mean, you have 200 guys in a peloton on roads, sometimes the size of bike path. So no matter how strong you are and how much power to weight race you are, if you aren't able to navigate yourself in the front of the peloton, usually away from most of the crashes and out of the wind, then it becomes a real struggle for a leader. So my role was always to keep people like Lance, Cadell, Contador, and even Mark Cavendish, out of the wind, in front, and in the safest part of the peloton, without them using their matches, so to speak, in that position. And I know a lot of people wonder why I would always be happy with that position, but I knew that I was one of the best in the world at that particular role, so I chose to focus early on in my career at doing something that I knew I was one of the best in the world at.
1: So talk about that, George, in the sense that most of us think of cycling as an individual sport, similar to tennis, golf, or marathon running. And yet, at the same time, particularly in the Tour de France and and, and the Grand Tours, it really is a team sport. And as I think about that as it relates to personality of athletes, you look at tennis players and golfers and they're singularly focused on their own individual performance. Whereas if you look at football players and hockey players, they know and realize that their performance is only as good as the team's. As a cyclist, how do you kind of manage those two mentalities, if you will, as you face racing in either a Grand Tour or an
0: individual race? Well, I mean, it's a great question. And the team aspect is ever-present in all these sports. Like you mentioned, tennis, yes, it's an individual sport, but think about the team that goes behind a tennis player. They're physios, their coaches, their mental coaches. There's a team behind all of these athletes, and in cycling... The team is actually on the road with the leader, and it's a very difficult job, and it's actually very, very important job within the team. And the riders know how important having a strong team is, and the leader knows how important it is to have a good domestique behind them. It's a very valuable position in the sport of cycling. So even though you don't get the sort of accolades you would if, if you won the actual race, within your world and within your team and within your organization, it's a highly regarded role. As you're growing
1: up in cycling and and you're winning amateur races and everyone's looking at you as being one of the very best in the world, how is it that all of a sudden, once you get into the pro ranks? They sort of say, okay, you're a domestique. You're the one who's going to be able to go for the yellow jersey. You're the one who's going to be going for the sprints, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, where is it in one's professional career that you sort of get slated for your role on where you'll play into that whole kind of ecosystem?
0: So before a rider turns pro, they're typically the best in their state, the best in their, one of the best in their country. And they're in that role of leadership before they turn pro everybody has won several national championships world championships and now it's their job and it's sort of a natural progress of you know you get to the pro level and even though you had been winning races your whole career now you're, you're racing against guys that have been winning races their whole career as well and you're with the best of the best the top one percent in the entire world and it's just basically the legs do the talking and there are some guys that recover really good and they were suited for three weeks of racing back to back every day over 100 miles a day and never really showing weaknesses. There are some guys that just survived those three week races. There are some guys that are that are really good like me at helping others, you know, get through those three weeks of racing safely and saving as much energy as possible. So it's just sort of a natural selection process once you turn professional. So you won the time trial in the Tour de France in
1: 2003 and Primoz Roglic. Won the olympic gold in the time trial by over a minute by the way today what was it like going to the olympics george and was there anything unique about going to the olympics versus going to the tour de france or other big international competitions that you went to and participated in
0: yeah so uh, the tour de france in the sport of cycling is the biggest event that we do the olympics was really unique in the sense that we were actually able to be around other athletes you know in the tour in the in the cycling races you're in this bubble you race the five to six hour stage. You finish, you go on the team bus. You don't really see anybody. You don't talk to anybody. And then when you go to the Olympics, all of a sudden you're in the, the Olympic village surrounded by thousands of athletes from all over the world. And it's a lot more of a social experience. Our event was one day and the Olympics are usually two to three weeks long. So you can hang out for a couple of days after your event, meet people and just sort of try to soak in the whole ambiance of being around some of the best athletes in the world. It's a super special, unique experience. Yeah.
1: So Lance Armstrong, at the end of the ESPN documentary on him that ran last year, just after the Michael Jordan documentary, said, quote, the country of America idolizes, glorifies, worships George Hincapie, invites him to races, gives him jobs, buys his shit. How do you become the
0: face of American cycling, George? <laughs> That's a great question. I think I've always valued my relationships, no matter who I met along the road. and. I, don't, I feel like that's sort of helped me in many different ways throughout my life, even as a second or third year pro when I didn't have a team to go. I was a young kid, didn't have great results that year, but my relationships helped me get on a, a new upstart team, which at the time was U.S. Postal Service. So lots of times I feel like just the people that I've met throughout my career and that I've kept close contact with have always helped me and I'm always learning from them you're one of them, Willie. Really. I mean, like it or not, I mean, you're definitely a, a big, confident under mine. And I'm, I've always felt really fortunate about the people that I've met, and I've done my best to keep as close to them as possible.
1: So you own an apparel company, Hincapie, which competes with the likes of other cycling brands like ASOS and Rafa and Costelli. Before I get to talking about that, we don't have brands such as Merckx, LeMond, or Armstrong. And so I guess my first question is, what gave you the gumption to create your own clothing line?
0: My brother and I started it back early on in my career and we're always trying to figure out ways where I would be able to remain in the sport long beyond my career. We had contacts in Medellin, Colombia, clothing contacts with my uncle, and uh, we just kind of started out really small and making gloves for a local ride here in South Carolina called Mount Mitchell. And then we made their jerseys. It was an 800 jersey order. And we had no idea what we were doing we so we'll figure it out and so we ended up making that sourcing that and just kind of grew from there we had a help of family down in medellin but it was just one of those things where we thought well we'll give it a shot and here we are 15 years later more than 15 years later
1: so clearly your your brother and your dad has played a big role in your overall cycling career Many people listening today have worn different types of bike clothing, either from a bike jersey that they were given during a charity ride to serious cyclists who are out there buying either your brand or somebody else's brand. What's the sweet spot in the market in the sense of how do you position Hincapie up against either the very high-end brands versus lower scale to get more of the market? How do you think about positioning Hincapie versus the other competitors yeah.
0: in the market. Definitely. I mean, like you, you, you got to look at the Rafas as like the Pradas and the Gucci of the market. You know, they are $350 pair of bib shorts and jerseys where we're in the 180 to 200 range. So i I like to compare us as the Gap or, you know, Lululemon, sort of the everyday brand that's high quality and technical enough to where you can be confident that when you go out in this kit, you're not losing any sort of performance by the price being a bit lower than the super high-end brands like ASOS and Rafa. Where's the trade-off in the sense of obviously you've got
1: manufacturing costs and you manufacture most of your product in Colombia. is that right? Yes, correct. And then it's obviously the materials and sort of the finish to the product. So as you try and price against them, where where are the trade-offs as it relates to these? Is it in material costs? Is it in manufacturing costs? I know nothing about that space, but it's interesting about trying to define what price point you're going to go after and what the component costs are to meeting that price point?
0: Yeah. So we try to focus primarily on Colombian fabrics because of the duty relationship we have with the United States has with Colombia. If we make our clothing with Colombian fabrics, we don't have to pay duties on what we bring in, which is a big portion of you know how we establish our pricing. And that's why we're able to I mean, it's always a process of finding the new fabrics, trying to stay ahead of the game in terms of technology with fabrics, which is a bit of a challenge in Colombia. It's not as easy as if you were in Switzerland or in Italy. The technology is always coming out of there in terms of the fabrics. So that's a bit, definitely a bit of a challenge of ours, and it's an ongoing challenge. We're always trying to stay on top of the fabric game. We have by no way accomplished that process, but it's an ongoing process, and we're comfortable with the fabrics that we're providing today. And the pricing is always, we try to remain consistent. Of course, it goes up slightly every year, but we try to remain consistent. We have a really loyal following that have been with us for several years. And we've bumped up our marketing. We've bumped up our sales teams to try to grow that following. And you know, once we establish a good relationship with a client, a ride, a company, usually they, they're happy with our customer service and they're happy. They're definitely happy with the costing of our products as well, in terms of compared to the Rafa's and the super high-end brands. So it's a process. I'm not saying we have it completely dialed in, but we're happy with the way it's going so far. How do you, just on that as it relates
1: to the fabrics, you wear both Cappy and then also you can wear anything you want. How do you, on product research, do you have a team that does it? Are you product research? Yeah, we have, you said that a lot of the, the different fabrics come out of Europe. I mean, is it that you are either given or ride something
0: and say, hey, we ought to emulate this? Or do you have your own product innovation team? How do you do that? We have product developers in house we have one or two in colombia and then we're we're about to hire a full-time one here anywhere i go i'm always checking out other fabrics you know see what's out there what's new and researching new technologies and and then i test a lot of the stuff that we come out with before it actually goes to market
1: so a question for you on the overall market which is just that why haven't the big clothing companies and apparel companies like nike and adidas come into the cycling market
0: well, Nike was in the cycling market with us. They made our clothing on U.S. of Service. They made cycling shoes. They still make a little bit of a small run of cycling shoes. Adidas was in it with Telecom as well. So they've kind of dabbled with it. And I'm not. that's a great question. I'm not sure why they haven't gone all in because the global cycling market is quite big. I'm not sure what the answer is to that. It's interesting you say the global cycling market, because I was as I was pulling
1: together my notes on this, I did notice that there are a billion bikes in the world and 1.5 billion automobiles. I hadn't thought about how many bikes are out there now. Clearly, the billion bikes aren't all people who want to buy Hinkapi sportswear. And so there are lots of bikes that are commuter bikes and just get from point A to point B of people who aren't spending additional money on all the other wares. And I want to get into the bike market in a moment. But before we get there closing off on the apparel side of things, everything seems to have supply chain issues right now. How are you dealing with both, I'm assuming that there's significant demand for your products today, and are you getting supply chain issues as it relates to manufacturing facilities?
0: Yes, the answer is yes. Obviously, a lot of uh, restrictions at our factory in, in Medellin, Colombia because of COVID, curfews where, you know, sometimes we run overtime shifts a lot of our employees weren't able to even get to the factory so we're later on stuff our timeline went from three to four week delivery to six to eight week and for the most part a lot of our customers are really understanding especially with everybody has been affected by the pandemic but it's definitely slowed down our delivery time almost doubled our delivery time which is something that we're not happy with but we're constantly trying to improve that timeline and has the demand come from the individual
1: consumer? Has it come from events that all of a sudden have sort of gotten a rebirth where there are more
0: people doing events than have in the past? Or has it been across the board? Across the board. We definitely saw, you know, a lot more small teams, your COVID groups that were made. Uh, were ordering jerseys together. And now with the events coming back online, we're seeing a lot more you know, events, ordering jerseys. We have a partnership with Peloton as well. They order a ton of bib shorts from us. We're happy with the partnership that we have established and constantly trying to grow that database.
1: So you mentioned Peloton. I was going to get to this later, but we'll jump on it now. A lot of people in the pre-question said, does George ride a Peloton? And I know you teach (laughs) Peloton classes. What do you do when you're not out on a bike? Are you on a Peloton?
0: Are you on a Nordic track? what do you use from a training standpoint when you're not outside yeah i actually taught peloton three or four years ago now i'm doing a lot of stuff for nordic track and it's a really interesting platform where it's totally different than peloton peloton are in studio classes where nordic track i fit you can sort of ride along with me anywhere in the world and i train you the video is a camera behind me actually on the road. you're getting the scenery we get drone footage It's sort of little mini documentaries. I do 12-part series. I've done them in Hawaii. I've done them here in the Carolinas. I just recently did Croatia. So you'll start seeing those come online. So for anybody who takes those iFit classes
1: with George, quote-unquote, training you as someone who has ridden quite a bit with George, that is a somewhat harrowing experience from time to time when George really wants to push you. But uh, uh, (laughs) hopefully you have the ability electronically to turn it down or turn it up. Um, You can,
0: definitely.
1: (laughs) So, George... Bike sales, along with apparel, bike sales, the pandemic has just driven bike sales to all new heights. I, I saw a stat by the by New York Times that bike sales were up 65% last year and e-bike sales were up 145% last year. I guess the first question I'd ask is any tips to people who are trying to buy
0: a bike who can't find a bike <laughs> anywhere on where they can find a bike right now? It is definitely a, a more challenging these days. And I actually hope that all these new people that are coming to our sport are going to remain in the sport or at least a higher percentage of them, but it's tough, but they're out there. I mean, there's companies like pros closet and of course eBay where if you do enough research and are patient enough, you can still find some good pre-owned bikes. One of the things that we've seen a
1: lot of recently is the growth in mountain biking as well as in gravel biking. And I think currently the U S market is about 68% road, 16% mountain bike and 6% gravel. As you've seen the market expand and grow, do manufacturers need to be big in all of those different disciplines in the sense that when mountain biking and gravel biking first started, there were distinct brands for those types of bikes and they were just the road bike manufacturers. And it seems like today the major brands like the Treks and the Specialized have broadened their brands out to cover both mountain as well as gravel. Is that a necessary component to being
0: a successful bike manufacturer today? I think for the big players, absolutely. And Like, like you said, all the big ones, uh, they all have the e-bikes, the gravel bikes, the road bikes, the kid bikes. I think for them, to, in order to reach scale and they have the production means, it's definitely the only way to stay on top of that game. But Of course, you have the super specialized, small niche brands that are not going to be able to do that or have the manpower or the finances to be able to produce that sort of lineup because that is a a whole nother task. And those companies are still doing well, of course, having their supply chain issues as well. But yeah, the big players are definitely providing all aspects of bikes right now. And what's that mean, George, in the apparel
1: space, in the sense that road biking is a bunch of spandex? Yeah. Mountain biking is kind of baggy shorts and a a big t-shirt. How do you play from an apparel standpoint to have a brand that that expands across all those given that the sort of the styles are distinct per, I mean, I think about my son who's a skateboarder, as you know, my son Jack is not wearing a polo shirt, right? He's, he's no, wearing no, a no. t-shirt and what have you. Yeah. And so how do you get the Hincapie brand to kind of push across to
0: gravel and to a mountain? We've already started doing that. We started designing mountain bike shorts, gravel hip shorts and gravel jerseys, playing around with some leisure stuff. We know that in order to keep growing and to hopefully get to where we want to get, we're going to have to be able to be a player in all of those segments of the sport. And so we definitely have started that process. Yeah.
1: There was a big article yesterday in the Wall Street Journal, George, written by Jason Gay, who you know well, about Tom Pidcock, who won the mountain bike race in Tokyo and him beating Vanderpoel as well as Van Art in that race and how those three great riders are all winning sort of on road, mountain and cyclocross slash gravel. And I think about it in the sense of all these brands from a manufacturer standpoint, from a clothing standpoint, having to stretch across. But one of the other things is these stars in each one of these disciplines are actually all doing multi-discipline. That's dramatically different from when you were a professional cyclist, Correct
0: absolutely i mean they've rewritten the whole playbook i mean the things that these guys are doing not only are they racing all these different disciplines but a guy like Van art he's winning sprints time trials and the hardest mountain stages in the tour de france <laughs> so as an announcer now with my show atlanta it's actually really super hard to predict some of this stuff because these guys i mean they have no fear they're able to go from tour de france to mountain biking to cyclocross they're changing the game. It's something we've never seen in our sport. It's, it's fun to watch. I thought previously that the skills between those three disciplines were very different. Not only
1: the skills of bike handling, but also the skills of how you would train slow twitch muscles versus fast twitch muscles, the size of the riders, all that. Is there something that's distinct today in these athletes that allows them to compete across these different disciplines from either a
0: training standpoint or just their core physiology? I think the way they're just not specializing at a young age. They're doing everything, which is kind of like what I do with my son now. We mountain bike, you know, we road bike, we ride gravel. I think at an early age, they're just trying to not specialize and doing everything they can on the bike to get as much experience as they can. At the end of the day, yes, the Tour de France is very specialized. Road biking is very specialized. But if you don't have that bike handling and you don't have that situational awareness in the peloton then no matter how strong you are, you're not going to succeed. So these things like cyclocross and mountain biking that are really much shorter events and intense and a lot of things going on technically, I think are sort of heightening their awareness inside of the Peloton and they're able to use that to their advantage.
1: So you you mentioned your son Enzo there and the type of training that you're doing with him. He went to U.S. Nationals and came in fourth back in June, which is an incredible accomplishment for a 13-year-old. And I guess my question would be with a father like you, with a name and a track record as famous as you are, how do you find that balance between sort of helping Enzo find his own path in his own career and at the same time being there to support him and use all the resources and all the knowledge that you have to impart on him?
0: Yeah, well, we, like you said, we were at Nationals a month ago. He got fifth in the time trial, fourth in the road race, and third in the criterium. So he kind of worked his way up the podium as Nationals went on, which was super fun to see. But for me, it's all about like him having fun. It's the point now where he's like, dad, we got to go training like "Dad, We're not riding hard enough. And it's been a few year process to get him there when, when he was seven, eight years old, it'd be me like going, come on, let's go for a ride instead of sitting around and watching TV. But I pushed him on other sports as well, but he ended up naturally picking cycling and the unique position that we're in. Yes. Of course he's my son and there's a lot of history there. And there'll be always a target on his back if he chooses to take the sports to the next level. But he's able to go on bike rides with myself, Bobby Julik, Christian Vandeville, guys that have been top three or four in the Tour de France. and Those are his weekend training rides, (laughs) which is sort of cool that he's able to do that. And we're not going to races every weekend right now just because we're able to have fun and go for, for training rides here at home and really mimic real serious racing just in our backyard you've known you've ridden here in greenville many times we have some incredible roads here world-class cycling right from our doorstep with ex-world tour you know world-class bikers that he's able to ride with so he's got a fun position and for me it's all about him having fun right now as opposed to putting any kind of pressure on him you talk about enzo doing weekend rides with you and bobby and christian
1: you were just over in europe for cadel evans the anniversary of his win of the Tour de France, and you were out cycling with a bunch of your old teammates. How hard do you all go?
0: <laughs> when I biked with them, we we went pretty chill. I had just gotten off a plane. I had been gone for a month and jumped on a plane to go to... Anyway, well, hang on a second. Weekends.
1: You've been gone for a month. You've been in Aspen racing Lance yeah, on almost true. a daily basis. So let's let's make sure that we're being clear here. But I, anyway, go ahead. I was
0: using the jet lag excuse, but we rode pretty easy. The longest ride we did was 50 miles. It was more about getting together and you know having some good food and wine and and then a little bit of riding. Although the area we were in in Tuscany was absolutely gorgeous, one of the best cycling areas in the entire world. I'm sure you've ridden there. It was just stunning. So it was fun to just go on nice, easy rides. The only time I've ever ridden there was at races where you're just suffering and you're not able to enjoy the scenery or look around. It's it fun to go back there and ride with some old teammates and enjoy the the area.
1: How hard is that when you're riding with amateurs where everyone wants to like, pace themselves and say, Oh, I rode with George Hincappy And like, I beat him up some climb or whatever else. There's gotta be a a point when you've moved from being a pro where you're constantly always focused on, all right, I got a hold here to just sort of like, I'm now a, if you will, a professional amateur, and you just kind of let people go by and don't worry about it. But everyone wants to pace themselves off of you. How do you, is that you ever think about it anymore? Do you just ride because you
0: feel like riding and at whatever pace feels like the natural pace? Yeah, I, it definitely happens. People are always testing us, but you know, I've performed at the highest level of the sport my whole life. So now for me it's about having fun. Yes, I like to ride hard on occasion, but you know, I'm not delusional in the sense that I, I think that I can still be pro riders. Like people that do it for a job, I know that they're going to crush me at will. But I don't really get bothered by somebody, you know, trying to beat me on a local training ride. I know that if I needed to get super fit, it would take me a month and I'd be there, but I'm happy with my fitness right now. and It's all about going out and having fun on bike rides and meeting new people. So sponsorship
1: of Tour de France teams, U.S. Postal, it's been shown, had a massive return on their investment of the team that you were on. And yet today the team sponsorship seem to be, I'm afraid to say, at least in my perspective, sort of these brands that most Americans don't know about, Ineos being one of them, for instance. I turned to Chris Davenport yesterday. I said, you know what Ineos actually does? And Dabs like, I think it's some (laughs) European insurer or something. But like the two of us who follow cycling pretty closely have no idea what Ineos is, even though I have one of the best teams. But what was surprising to me was the Bahrain and UAE teams and the sponsorships that have come from these Middle Eastern countries. Do you have any sense, George, why it is that these countries are sponsoring these teams versus just bigger brands that are either insurance companies, financial services companies, and also why more
0: big U.S. brands haven't invested in teams? Well, firstly, I can help change that for you, Willie. If you want a, a Walker Dunlop team in the Tour de France, I can make that happen like tomorrow. So we could talk offline about this. But uh, no, it's a great point. A lot of the support of cycling now are just really passionate individuals that own big companies that want to be involved in a sport that they love. And there is still a big argument for the actual marketing that they get out of it. In fact, there was a study from H2R, the big French team that was released two years ago that they get $100 million of marketing value just from the Tour de France alone. So companies like that, that actually have a real global interest are getting you know a real good return on their marketing investment from the Tour de France. And, but yeah, we lately we have seen a lot of interest from China, Middle East, like you said, and these are just you know people that are passionate about the sport, perhaps want to... Promote tourism in their countries, and and there's you know this is a great vehicle to do that for them. What's it cost to sponsor a Tour de France team on an annual basis? So the average budget is around twenty to twenty five million, but a team like Ineos is at fifty million. A team like Jumbo Visma, who is second the Tour de France, is around forty. So anywhere from fifty to twenty million on the low side.
1: And is most of that going to the riders, to the coaches to the equipment where's the breakdown is it like most post sports where most of the money goes to the actual athletes or is it somewhat distinct that it costs so much to move these teams around and supply them with bikes and cars and all that that a lot of that is actually eaten up on making the actual race happen and not going to the riders
0: yeah i would say the the majority of the budget is rider salaries but a lot of these pro tour teams have 50 to 60 staff members think about that plus 20 to 25 riders so it's about you know a 60 to 80 person team so everybody's got to get paid of course there's you got to have doctors on staff you have to have trainers yet nowadays you have to have nutritionists training camps throughout the whole year travel is a big portion of it it's a very expensive deal to have a Tour-de- France team
1: and what's changed the most George from a technology standpoint since you were riding the tour is it the materials they're putting into the bikes is it the nutrition that the athletes are using to train is it the diagnostics that the technology is giving the athletes is it bike computers bike componentry where's where's technology taking it to a different level than it when you look at it you say whoa i wish i only had that back
0: when i was doing it yeah a lot of things you just mentioned nutrition is a big one i mean a lot of these guys are are training their bodies to absorb more carbohydrates than a, than a normal person can absorb on the hour. So that's why they're able to do these prolonged efforts. There's Most of the teams now have the software inside of the cars behind the Peloton, that's called VeloViewer, where back in my day, one of my strongest suits in cycling was no matter what was coming on the road, I would usually be able to react really quickly. Like, let me explain that. If we're on a road the size of a highway and all of a sudden we hit a road the size of a bike path, and nobody knew it was coming, then I would usually be ready to react. Even if I was sitting in the middle of Peloton, I would sense that, it, I know it sounds weird, but I would sense that it was coming, and I would get to the front, react, or bring my guy to the front. Nowadays, with this software, everybody knows what's coming. The roads are all coming at the screen on the computer. You have two drivers. You have a driver who's a director, and then the guy in the passenger seat is also a director, and he's studying the maps. The riders know exactly what's coming. So a lot of my strong suit as a cyclist is now taken away everybody is reacting before if it was 10 miles before you hit a section that nobody was coming now everybody knows it's coming so that's changing the game a lot in my opinion
1: so I hadn't actually thought we were going to talk about this, but I want to I want to get your take on this because the women's road race in Tokyo a couple of days ago, the Dutch team totally they were going to win it. They had the four top riders, but because they don't have earpieces, they lost track of how many riders were in front of them. And there was a breakaway group that had five in it and then they caught four of them, but they didn't know that one was out in front and she won the race. And when the number one Dutch rider crossed the finish line, she threw her hands up thinking she'd won, and she actually hadn't. It's amazing to me that they don't allow, A, the earpieces in the Olympic Games, but B, that they just couldn't count like how many people were on the breakaway and they hadn't spoken to each other. Is there anything else to that other than the fact that they just didn't have the technology, George, and that they... Yeah. So many of these road riders are getting dependent on that technology you're talking about, about listening to their yeah. managers and telling them you got to go and
0: here's the pace and all that stuff that when without that, they're sort of with an arm time behind their back. That's exactly right. I mean, they're getting used to having all of this information and then they get to a race like the Olympics, which is one of the biggest race, their biggest race of the entire year. They don't have the information. And so once you become so dependent on having all this information, fed to you, and you don't have it. And your heart rates at 200, and you're racing for the Olympic Games. It's easy to miss not catching one rider that you gave a 10 or over 10 minute lead at the beginning of the race. Like she just forgot about it, which you know is kind of like shocking in one way, but at the same time, if you're dependent on all this information coming in throughout the whole year, and then all of a sudden for this one day just happens to be the biggest race in the entire world, you're not getting that information. I could see where there was that slip up, but it was a. Uh, I mean, it was a, what a great story. I mean, the lady who won was a. Uh, Amateur cyclist was pro at one point and just rode an amazing race and ended up beating the best in the world. She has a PhD from Cambridge in applied mathematics.
1: I was, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, isn't that the Olympic yeah. Games to some degree of this woman who's an amateur rider who's got a PhD in applied mathematics and ends up winning the race? I mean, it was pretty neat. It was actually very
0: very neat. I Agreed.
1: You talk about their heart rates being up at 200 beats a minute and kind of losing track of things. It it makes me think, George, about in the Tour de France, all those people who jump out on the road. Here you are, you're climbing up some big climb and 10 to 12 million people. I didn't know this. I I found it out when I was researching this. 10 to 12 people actually show up to watch the Tour de France. So for the 21 days, 10 to 12 million French people show up on the side of the roads to cheer you on. But on those climbs, when you're going up this year, you know, they did the double on Bantu and you're going up to the top of Bantu and all of a sudden, Super Mario jumps out in front of you with this big sign saying, go, George, go. And we obviously had the crash this year that was hugely unfortunate of that woman who had hi, grandpa and grandma on the sign and ended up causing a huge crash in, in the second stage. But beyond that, which obviously can't exist, I always am wondering, what's it like when your heart rate is up in your ears and you can't breathe and you're just trying to get to the top of that and all of a sudden some guy in the Super Mario costume jumps out in front of you. How do you deal with that?
0: <laughs> and the Tour de France, you're just so used to it, and you're just expecting them not to actually get in front of your, your wheel or a crash. You know that they're going to get close, and uh, you just got to have faith that they're not going to take you out. But sometimes they do, like we all saw in the Tour de France today, which ended up being a, one of the most famous crashes in all of cycling history. Some lady took out the whole peloton. <laughs> so it's definitely a possibility. It's a scary thing, especially when you're heading down a road at 40 miles an hour of somebody's out in the middle of the road with a stroller trying to take a picture. Like I still wake up with nightmares about situations like that. But it's part of the sport. It's part of this beauty of the sport too, that fans are actually able to get up and close and see their their heroes of the sport. But at the same time I feel like there needs to be more control and you hate to see stuff like that happen in tour de France where you know, guys that have worked their whole year, their whole lives have been in a position or taken out by a, a sign on the side of the road. Never want to see that.
1: Yeah. Do you think that the Tour de France was smart not to press charges against that woman or to, they started to and then they backed away because they <laughs> thought that it would do something to the overall nature of the race? Do you agree with that? Or do you think they, they should have sort of made an example of her saying, come out and cheer. But if you do something really stupid and take an entire peloton down, you're going to have
0: charges pressed against you. I thought a a year in jail what they were saying is a bit harsh of a punishment i mean obviously she didn't want that to happen it was definitely an unfortunate thing and hopefully the people watching that you know learned a lesson that try to stay out of the middle of the road when the peloton's coming i feel like the tour could do more things as well have more motorcycles or signage before the actual peloton comes through with cars loudspeakers saying stay off the road and they started doing that after that crash so I think they uh, kind of doubled down on the safety after what happened there. So beyond your
1: clothing company, you also have a hotel and you also have a series of events that people come and participate in Grand Fondos. And on the Grand Fondo side, I'm going to kind of broadly talk about that as it relates to bike tourism, because getting your insights as it relates to what you know on bike tour companies like Backroads or DuVine and how they've managed the pandemic and what the demand for their product is. And then also the demand for your product. How'd your fondos do during the pandemic? And then what are you looking at as it relates to future bookings? And do you see a significant uptick in
0: people wanting to participate in events going forward? Yeah. So last year we had two grand fondos on the books. One was canceled because of the pandemic. And we went ahead and did our local one, Greenville, ended up having over 1,500 people. It was an all outdoor event. We did corrals where we separated all the riders by groups of 50 by a few minutes apart. Of course, separated on the start line as well. And yeah, I was, I was a bit worried about it becoming a super spreader event, but fortunately, Naga Wood, everything went down really well and never heard of anybody getting sick from the event. So we ended up doing our, our Greenville event in October and it was about 1500 people. We usually get about 2000. So it was less than we normally have, but it was a great success, especially people were, Just seeing people outdoors and having fun and doing an event was just awesome to see. The fact that we actually were able to do it and we got support from the county and the city was already a huge win for us. This year coming up, we had the one in Chattanooga, which was a huge success. One of my favorite courses, one of my favorite towns in the Southeast. Super fun event. People were really happy. Then we have our Greenville one coming up in October, which is our 10-year anniversary. And we're ready. 50% over where we've ever been in the past. So we're definitely seeing an uptick in people signing up for the events. Any perspective on the
1: kind of the bike tourism market, George, from conversations with either our mutual friend Andy Levine at Duvine or Backroads or others? Are they seeing significant rider or trip participant uptick in their, in their volumes given things opening back up?
0: Yeah, I've only spoken briefly with them. Backroads actually does events at our camps at our hotel. And they've been doing a couple already this year. But it seems like that demand is absolutely picking up. Our hotel was uh, 95% occupied in May, 94 in June, and like 90-ish in uh, July. Uh, so it's been the busiest summer we've ever had in the history of the hotel. So we're seeing a lot of uptake and not only from the cycling tourism, but for weddings and events. And the unique thing about our place is that it's a small space with lots of outdoor space. So people feel comfortable going there and we're, we're seeing a lot of action there. So when you and I have ridden up Maroon Bells in, in Aspen
1: before, as you and I are slogging along on our bikes, people come whizzing by us on e-bikes. E-bikes have brought a whole new dimension to biking and bike tourism. What's your view on that and, and how much of an opportunity is there in the e-bike market from the various areas of the biking industry that you're invested in?
0: I think it's a huge opportunity, and I think we're just starting to see the beginning of it. I'm a huge supporter of it. As long as people are safe, you hate to see people that don't know how to ride a bike that are bomb up, for instance, Maroon Bells, but then bomb down it. As we all know, that could be a very dangerous predicament. But as long as people are doing it safely, I, I love it. I mean, I just bought an e-bike for my dad. He's able to ride with my son and I on the weekends, which he would never be able to do on a regular bike. He still gets a great workout. He's still outside exercising and you know, getting up the mountains with a little bit of help. I love it. I think it's a great thing for our industry.
1: So you own a hotel, Hotel Domestique in Traveler's Rest, South Carolina. How's that been through the pandemic, and what's it looking like from here forward?
0: It was looking a little bit scary back in March of 2020. We had to pretty much shut down March and April. Then May, we opened back up, and we we started seeing an uptake from May on, and it hasn't slowed down. It's been the fall of last year was one of our busiest falls ever. And like I mentioned earlier, the summer has been our best summer ever. And the fall, which is typically our busy season, isn't even here. And we're ready over our planned budget for the year. So we're we're definitely happy with what we're seeing there at the hotel. And our next plan is to hopefully expand and add another 12 to 15 rooms. We're working on that now and to bring us up to about 25 rooms. So that'll be the next step to do there.
1: And anything, George beyond just sort of the normal COVID protocols that most uh, all hospitality providers did that you and your team did that has changed the way that Domestique is either finding clients or operating on a day-to-day basis, or is it sort of business as usual?
0: We did all the standard things that we were required to do. And of course, it went above and beyond that in terms of cleansing, hired new people. Although, as you know, Getting the workforce right now has is, is definitely been a challenge, but we're fortunate enough now to have a loyal team up there and people that are, like working up there. And I think where we're placed and the actual the actual lay, uh, the actual, way the hotel is framed up is that we we're small, like I mentioned, and we have a ton of outdoor space. So from the beginning, people were like, I need to get out of the house. I don't want to go to a big box hotel. I want to go here. This is like, you know, it's kind of your home away from home where you can do your own thing, be separated from people as you want, or you know, mingle when you want to as well. That's kind of definitely been helpful for us. So I have
1: two questions that I got from Chris Davenport and from my wife yesterday as we were coming back from Idaho to Colorado. And Dav's question was, outside of cycling, which athletes do you think are the best all-round athletes?
0: I'd say Tom Brady in terms of the way he lives his lifestyle. Still going, I think, what is 20-something season. How many Super Bowls now? Seven, seven Super Bowls. Yeah. Just incredible. I mean, his whole diet. I did a podcast for his TB12 company, and it's just like their whole outlook on the way they work out and the way their lifestyle is next level. So for me, that's definitely one of the the best all-around athletes in the world, in my opinion. It's interesting that you went to that
1: and not another endurance athletic field. So like Dav put forth that you would say Nordic skiers because that's kind of the, if you will, most similar to biking, where you're just driving your physical body to the complete limit. But it's interesting that you went to someone who was in a team sport, not to say the football players aren't incredible
0: athletes, because they clearly are, but it's not an endurance sport. But you're talking about longevity, really. I'm talking about longevity, and I'm talking about balance. I mean, as a cyclist, and as a Nordic track skier, like, I mean, you're so one dimensional. When I was a professional cyclist, If I went on a 25-minute walk, I would be sore (laughs) because all I could do is pedal the bike. So for me, when I see an athlete that is just so focused on longevity and health and wellness and not only being great at their sport, I feel like that's the next level of being at the top of the game in sports.
1: So the next question from my wife won't surprise you, which is that you clearly have this incredible history of being one of the great cyclists of all time and 17 Tour de France's and everything else that you've done stands on its own. But beyond the cycling, when it's all said and
0: done, what do you want to be remembered for? I actually did an interview this morning. I I want my kids to know that i worked super hard, that I never took my position for granted, that I was trying to continue to learn even today, now that I'm faced with new challenges in business. And just there's no shortcuts to working hard. And then also one of the things also that i is important for me to, as we all know, I was part of a crazy era in the sport of cycling, but I want my kids and people that know me to understand that I was also part of that change, that, you know, I was one of the riders that stood up for change and that said enough was enough. This is going on. This is rampant in the sport. We need to change the sport and we need to go in a new direction. And that's one of my most proudest things is that I know that I was a big part of that change in the sport. And I'm comfortable, really comfortable where the sport is today, even though of course, I'm sure it's still happening, but it's not the majority and it's not part of the culture anymore. I will
1: say that my wife and dad came to fast, strong and handsome as the three things that you'd be uh, remembered <laughs> for. So uh, so on that, and as it relates to change, George, on the doping side of things, the Bahrain victorious team had their rooms raided during this year's Tour de France. And then the next day, uh, Mahorek won the stage. And as he came across the finish line, he kind of zipped his lips and I heard your comments on that on the drive, and I'm just curious, was he basically saying you got nothing on us, or was he saying we're so tight-lipped that you're never going to find it? In other words, is doping still a yeah. part of pro cycling?
0: So like I mentioned, it's it's a part of it, absolutely, but I would say it's a very, very, very fractional part of it. Back in the day, it was the majority. It was a huge part of the sport of cycling. Everybody knew it. Everybody just accepted it. Now it's not really accepted I feel like my zipping the lips gesture was more of like, you took my laptops, you took my phones, you went through my whole suitcase, like have at it. You're not going to find anything. because There's nothing there. I actually liked his comment, his confidence in his interview. And you know, the fact that he won the stage and it's hard to say why would they went through all their stuff? So, I mean, imagine someone going through all of your stuff and taking your laptop, taking your phone and say, you'll get it back in two months. <laughs> I mean, that's kind of like only happens in the sport of cycling, but who knows? I mean, I don't know those guys and, You know, I'm hoping that they're all clean and I know some of them and I'm sure that some of them are definitely clean, but I can't speak for the whole team. So your longtime
1: friend, Mark Cavendish, who almost didn't participate in this year's Tour de France, ended up not only participating, but winning four stages and tying Eddie Merck's record as most Tour de France stage wins of all time. I listened to you talk about him and and his struggles with both mental health and with being at the top of his game, at the bottom of his game, and how that journey has, has been for Cav. And I'd love to hear your thoughts, George, as it relates to how representative is Cav? I mean, not he's just tied the all-time record as far as Tour de France stage wins. So he's at the very, very top of all-time racers in racing history. But his journey as it relates to the struggles of being a pro athlete, being a pro cyclist, seem emblematic of basically kind of most of the peloton. Is that fair in the sense of, you know, just that the grueling day-to-day nature of being in that race,
0: being in that sport, and what it takes to stay at the top of your game? Yeah, especially with somebody like Cav, who's just so passionate and such a hard worker and puts so much pressure on himself that, you know, you see a lot of these guys, like even Michael Phelps, Simone Biles. I mean, they're just the pressure that they put on themselves is more than you can imagine any other source of pressure coming. I mean, these guys are so hard on themselves that eventually something is gonna crack. And, you know, I was with not with Cav, but I spoke a lot with Cav throughout his his hard period where last year he didn't have a contract and he was finishing a race again Welvegum and just started bawling on TV thinking that he would never race as a professional cyclist again. And then to go from that low, you know, to where he where he was this year in July was just for me like one of the greatest comebacks ever. In fact I talked to him before the Tour de France, ten days or two weeks before the Tour de France and I'm like is the Tour de France back on the cards? And he's like, man, I don't know if, if I want to do it. I don't know if I'm ready. And I kind of yelled at him. I'm like, bro, you're ready. Like, you got this. And so even at that point, he wasn't fully confident in what he can do. But look what he did. He tied the all-time record for stage in the Tour de France. And it was just a, a great comeback story. And uh, I was really personally happy to see him do so well. We were
1: all hoping that he would break Eddie Merck's record on the final stage coming into the Champs-Élysées. On your final Tour de France, they asked you to go to the front of the Peloton as you came on to the Champs-Élysées to lead the Peloton into the Champs-Élysées. What was that like? It gives me goosebumps thinking about it, but just there you are at the front of the Peloton heading into the Champs-Élysées on the biggest stage in the world, in the biggest race, and you're right at the front of it. How much of an honor was that and, and anything particular that you remember about that day? (laughs)
0: <laughs> well, it was a, I actually didn't want to do it. But all the riders, Bradley Wiggins was winning the tour. You know, a lot of the lead riders were like, you're doing this. We want you to do it. So basically, I had no choice. <laughs> I'm like, you know me, Will. I love the attention. But it was a great feeling coming across the line, leading. My whole family was there for my tour, to, my last Tour de to France. It was special just being able to, you know, know that that was one of the last times I was ever going to cross the Champs elysees and being honored by the Peloton. And by the way, the the whole Peloton knew that this whole story was about to break. They all knew that I was part of that era 10 years before that. But for the the 10 years leading up that, that I was a a major part of the change. For me, it was super special and a confirmation of the fact that, like, yes, I was still very well respected. The Peloton was thankful for my role in the sport of cycling. Well,
1: I am uh, super thankful that you took the time today to join me. I got just as many emails before this from friends saying, can't wait to listen to George. Got about three or four last night of people just saying, my Wednesday is going to be made by listening to your conversation with George. So (laughs) I'm deeply appreciative of the time. I'm deeply appreciative of the friendship. And many congratulations on all that you did, both in cycling and all that you are doing today outside of cycling, but still in the cycling world. I very much look forward to seeing you soon and just say thanks very
0: much for taking the time thank you really likewise it's been a real pleasure for me and i very much appreciate the friendship
1: thanks everyone for joining us we'll be back next week to talk about the book legacy and how the all blacks of new zealand have created a very unique culture and character as they have been the most winning rugby team on the face of the planet and again george thanks and i hope everyone has a great wednesday take care